is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. Until recently, endovascular therapy for ischemic stroke has generally been limited to patients with a small infarcted core and a big penumbra. That's the surrounding salvageable tissue, which makes sense. The question is, does endovascular therapy benefit those patients with big infarcted cores? Here's Swami to give us the answer based on the latest studies. The end of 2014 into 2015 was a critical turning point for stroke management. In December 2014, we saw the publication of the Mr. Clean trial. This is the first publication, first study to show that endovascular therapy could offer benefits to patients, specifically those with large vessel occlusion strokes. Over the next couple of years, we saw a slew of publications echoing these findings and subsequently expanding indications and time windows. Our current guidelines recommend endovascular therapy be undertaken in patients presenting with a large vessel occlusion, defined as occlusion of the internal carotid artery, middle cerebral artery, and anterior cerebral artery, occurring within 24 hours of presentation where advanced imaging shows a small ischemic core with an at-risk but viable penumbra. These recommendations have forced us to change our triage to screen for those who could have an LVO within 24 hours. We do this typically by looking for an NIHSS greater than or equal to six or by using a VAN score and then moving forward with non-con head CT, CT angio, and then either CT or MR perfusion. It's nice that we've settled into this approach, but of course, as data emerges, things continue to change. There's been a handful of recent publications that are important to consider as they may lead to changes in our current stroke paradigm, specifically in those patients with large vessel occlusion. The first two studies for us to look at are Angel Aspect and Select 2. Both of these were published early 2023 in the New England Journal of Medicine. We're not going to go deep into the weeds on methodology or critique, but we'll highlight a couple of points along the way. Both studies were randomized, prospective, open-label trials. Angel Aspect took place in China, while Select 2 enrolled patients across 31 sites in the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Europe. The alteration to protocol in these studies is that the researchers specifically sought to enroll patients with larger infarcted cores. Remember that before our paradigm was small infarcted core, big penumbra. Now they're saying, let's look at those patients with larger core infarcts. The prior studies from Mr. Clean on all excluded that group, basically less salvageable tissue. Let's keep them out. And it didn't make sense to enroll those patients because you're trying to show a benefit let's try to show a benefit in the patient group that is most likely to have a benefit. One other important thing to mention is how they defined a large vessel occlusion. Remember in the past, it was the middle cerebral artery, anterior cerebral artery, and the internal carotid. Now they are changing that large vessel occlusion to include those with initial segment of the middle cerebral artery or the intracranial segment of the distal internal carotid artery or both. The anterior cerebral artery is out, and in previous iterations, the middle cerebral artery, they looked at a couple of different branches. Now they're just looking at the initial segment. 
Angel Aspect reported that those who got EVT, that endovascular therapy, were more likely to achieve a good neurologic outcome, and overall they saw a shift in the modified Rankin scales at 90 days favoring EVT. Select 2 reported similar findings, better neuro outcomes, shift in the MRS in the group that got EVT. So basically this looks to say, even if you have a larger infarcted core, you're going to have more benefit from endovascular therapy than you would with typical medical management. But there are some important caveats to consider. Both studies were stopped early for benefit. This is an issue because typically when studies are completed, we see regression to the mean. Stopping early tends to overestimate the benefit of the intervention. That doesn't mean there wouldn't be any benefit if the study was completed, but it's highly likely that the benefit wouldn't be as big as what we saw in these publications. Both studies were unblinded. The patient and clinicians knew if they got endovascular therapy or typical medical management, though the outcome assessors were blinded. Unfortunately, outcome assessor blinding is susceptible to unblinding as the patient may inadvertently reveal what therapy they got, and this creates a potential for bias. One of the other interesting things that we saw that was different between the two studies is that in Angel's aspect, there was a significant increase in both symptomatic and asymptomatic intracranial hemorrhage in the endovascular therapy group but we didn't see that in the SELECT-2 study. There are some other methodological bones to pick, but that's not really what we're here for. What we want to know is what this means for the patient in front of us. At this point, there hasn't been any change in organizational recommendations, but if subsequent data echoes these findings, I think we will see a shift where interventionalists are going to consider endovascular therapy even if the patient has a significant infarcted core. It's important for us to know where a change like this comes from and to anticipate how this is going to change our stroke assessments and workflows. Let's get to the third paper, a very different point that they were trying to expand in that EVT. This was the Select Late study published in JAMA, again, early 2023, and it had some of the same authors as in the Select 2 study. This was a retrospective study looking at patients clearly beyond the 24-hour from onset of symptoms where imaging confirmed a large vessel occlusion. They compared patients who got endovascular therapy with those who got medical management. Essentially, this group was looking to see if they could expand the time window for intervention. This group reported that endovascular therapy was associated with significantly better functional outcomes, 38% versus 10% in the typical medical management group, and that is a massive increase. This was also coupled with a massive increase in intracranial hemorrhage of 10% in the EVT group versus just 1.7% in the standard management group. A 28% absolute improvement sounds great, but because this was a retrospective study, it's filled with so many issues as to make it impossible to really draw any meaningful conclusions. The biggest issue is that we have no idea why certain patients were chosen for EVT and certain patients were chosen for medical management. Except we kind of do, because when we look at the patients who got EVT, we see that they were less sick than the medical management group. They had lower stroke scores at baseline, they were less likely to have infarcted tissue, and they arrived to the quaternary stroke centers sooner. Essentially, the group that got EVT past that 24-hour time was cherry-picked, a massive bias in favor of the EVT group. Ultimately, the only thing that can really come out of this paper is the need for high-quality, prospective randomized studies. I don't think there's any sense in acting on this data given the inherent biases in a retrospective cohort. So will endovascular therapy be extended to another subset of patients? 
specifically those with the large infarcted cores. Honestly, I think we just have to keep an eye on emerging data here. At this point, I don't think we have enough high quality evidence to push us in that direction, but we may see more of that literature emerge and we may see that shift coming soon. So now we know what to look for, what may be coming down the pike in terms of stroke care. I totally agree with Swami. We really need to be careful not to make major changes in eligibility criteria for stroke based on a couple of okay studies. Let's wait for some bigger and better studies. Let's take a careful look at the harms and the costs of expanding endovascular programs across the continent as well. Next up, we have our go-to pediatric EM educator, Dr. Sarah Reed, who's going to talk about a disease that occurs almost exclusively in kids that can be tough to diagnose, especially early on in its course. We sometimes misdiagnose it as gastro or functional abdominal pain or viral illness, and these misdiagnoses lead to poor outcomes. Here's Dr. Reed. Intussusception is the most common abdominal emergency in young children, and it can be a challenge to figure out who just has an early gastro, who is just fussy and crying, and who might actually have something more serious going on. So basically, this is definitely one of those needle in the haystack issues that we have so commonly in peds emerge. And the other problem with intussusception is that it doesn't always present like they describe it in the textbooks, so we have to really keep our antenna up for it. The most common type of intussusception is the idiopathic form that involves the ileocecal valve, so the small valves going through the valve and getting stuck in the large valve. And 80% of cases occur in babies and toddlers under the age of two, with the incidence peaking around nine to 10 months. Less commonly, intussusception can occur in older kids, and in these cases, it's more associated with a pathologic lead point. So they have an underlying Hanoxone-Lang purpura, or they have a Meckel's diverticulum, or a cyst, or something else in the bowel that serves as a lead point. So as I mentioned, the presentation is a bit variable, and that's what makes it really tough. So they do describe this classic triad of intermittent abdominal pain, vomiting, and bloody stool. But, um, you know, to be honest, I've never seen a kid with the bloody stool. And when you look at this classic triad, it's, it's way less than half the kids. So not super helpful. Other authors describe the, the waves of pain and the paroxysms of crying every sort of 15 to 20 minutes. And certainly... I've seen many kids that it's not as frequent as that. So I think we have to be careful not to hang our hat completely on uh, this that frequency. The vomiting can occur during those paroxysms of crying or with the painful episodes and can progress to bilious emesis over time because it's an obstruction. The other thing is that a baby can present with just decreased LOC. So intussusception is on the differential for a baby or young child who's just altered. And as I mentioned, the current jelly stool that we all learned about in med school is a late finding. And uh, despite having diagnosed intussusception many times, I have never seen current jelly stool. So it is definitely not a di diagnostic requirement. Rarely, you might actually palpate a mass on the right side of the belly. In fact, uh, one time I had a toddler who'd had a couple episodes of crying. She was having some pain and pulling up her knees and she'd had a couple of episodes of vomiting but she looked really well when I went in to see her and then the dad said you know I think the right side of her belly looks bigger and he was right <laughs> so uh, lucky for me so you know basically I think you need to think about intussusception in the right age of child so babies and young children right babies and toddlers and they can present with a constellation of, of symptoms so vomiting in the absence of diarrhea and it might be bilious they could have recurrent crying episodes that aren't normal for them. So good to ask the parents about their behavior. They could have episodes where they seem to have pain in their belly. They might even pull up their knees. So good to ask about that to the parents. They could just look pale. They could have a decreased LOC or the bloody stool. 
And any of those symptoms alone or in combination with the right age of child should add to our index of suspicion that there's something other than just an early gastro going on. When you're doing the physical exam, you're going to want to try and get them as calm as possible and assess their belly. And you might need to come back and do it. You might need to give them some pain control and come back and assess. But if it seems persistently tender or you feel a mass, they're definitely going to need a workup because, you know, in gastro, the belly is not usually that sore and they're usually quite distractible. If there's no worrisome features on the history and they have a perfectly normal exam, so, you know, they're not having episodes of crying, they don't seem to have pain, there's a bit of vomiting, but there's no signs of obstruction, kid looks really well for you, totally normal exam, able to tolerate fluids for you, then I think you're good to discharge them home with good instructions. Like, obviously, if the, rec- the vomiting recurs and persists, if it's bilious or bloody, if they have bloody stool, if they seem to have worsening belly pain or lethargy, then they're going to they're gonna have to come back. And if they do have any of those historical features that we talked about, or they have significant tenderness or a mass on on the belly exam, they're going to need a workup. And that basically means that they're going to need an ultrasound. So the sensitivity and specificity of the formal ultrasound is about is essentially 100%. So you get these the classic sort of target or bullseye lesion, and that's just the layers of intestine within intestine. And POCUS is great for interception as well. X-rays are much less sensitive and specific, so they shouldn't be used routinely unless you think the kid has a peritonitis or perforation. You could see obstruction or absence of colonic gas or a target sign on the right kidney in the x-ray, but they can also be normal even when interception is present, so not super helpful. We generally do start IVs in these kids and give them some fluid. You might need to bolus if you're worried about hyperperfusion or shock, and we need to treat their pain, so starting with acetaminophen and ibuprofen, and then you can progress to opioids intravenously if the pain seems like moderate or severe. We give empiric antibiotics like ceftriaxone and metronidazole if we're worried about uh, perforation or peritonitis, but otherwise you should not give. As long as there's no concern for perforation, the child goes on to air enema reduction that's under fluoro or ultrasound guidance, and it's successful like 80 to 90% of the time. And it's usually done by the peds radiologist with peds surgery available since perforation is a rare complication of the air enema. It can be repeated if it's initially not successful, as long as there's no perforation, the child's tolerating it. But otherwise, if it is not successful, the child will go on to laparotomy. If the reduction is successful with the air enema, the child can be observed and emerge for about four hours, and then they can be discharged home if they're well and they're able to tolerate oral. And that's great, actually, because we used to admit all these patients to hospital. There's about a 2% risk of recurrence within those first uh, four hours post-reduction, and then about a 10% overall risk of recurrence for kids with intussusception, but they can go home with normal care, no restrictions and good discharge instructions about coming back if the abdominal pain seems to come back, if they have vomiting or lethargy. And if there is a recurrence, they can still be reduced using an air enema. But um, kids who have multiple recurrences usually do get worked up to rule out a possible pathologic lead point. Thanks very much. Excellent review as always. Thank you so much, Dr. Reed. Some key points there. So babies and toddlers can present just with decreased level of awareness or just with bilious or non-bilious vomiting or just with pain or fussiness or pulling up the knees or just with abdominal mass. Radiology performed ultrasound has excellent accuracy. So that's the test you want. And it's very interesting that after reduction of the intussusception that some kids are actually safe to go home after just four hours of observation in the ED. All right, next up, we have our trauma expert, Dr. Andrew Petrosoniak, who's going to give us five great tips on the management of patients with penetrating injuries. 
Most of us not working in a trauma center rarely see penetrating thoracoabdominal injuries, but it's certainly a stressful situation. It's clear that unstable patients, either those with stab wounds or gunshot wounds, require immediate surgical intervention. But with stable patients, things can proceed slightly differently. I'd like to share five tips or pearls in the management of stable patients with penetrating thoracoabdominal injuries that you can't really find in the textbooks. These are particularly applicable to those working in a community hospital. So let's start with a case, and I'll then follow up with these tips. So you're working in a busy community hospital. You get a pre-hospital notification from EMS that there's a 40-year-old male who has a gunshot wound to the mid-abdomen. At this point, there's no vitals available. So let's go through these five tips. Tip number one, call for two units of uncross-matched blood. I'll often do this when I get a heads up from the pre-hospital team. For sure, I'll call for two units of PAC cells if the patient has a GSW. At St. Mike's, I'll usually wait if it's a stabbing, but I think at a community hospital where it might take a few minutes to get blood, it's very justifiable to do so, and this really helps to get a key rate-limiting step underway. To be clear, I don't mean to activate MHP. It's just about getting some PAC cells to the bedside so that if the patient does become unstable or arrives unstable, we'll be prepared. In this case, it's a GSW and we have no vital signs available, but I'll call for two units of O positive as a means to handle the risk of decompensation. Full disclosure, this isn't the most evidence-based recommendation, but penetrating injury is a common criteria in the MHP scores, so I do think it's justifiable. If you don't use the blood, just send it back. For females less than 50, get O negative. Otherwise, O positive for everybody else is just fine. Tip number two, sit the patient up when they arrive. This obviously only applies or is logistically feasible if they're stable and awake, but it's incredibly important to see the back of the patient and to know what else might contribute to instability. And don't forget to check the axilla. Once patients lie down in our recess room, they become metaphorically glued to the bed, and so no one sees the back for 10-15 minutes until the log roll is performed. In this case, our patient has a GSW to the abdominal region. He arrives and is stable and awake. As we move him from the EMS stretcher to the bed, I'll get him to sit up and raise his arms so that I can check and see if there's another wound. I want to know that if he suddenly becomes hypotensive, whether it's potentially due to a posterior chest wound that would benefit from a chest tube. Tip number three, my first view with the ultrasound is the pericardium. I don't really care about the abdomen in a stable patient. In this era, he's going to get a CT. So the presence or absence of free fluid in the abdomen doesn't really change a lot. I still do a fast, but my priority is the pericardium. If he has a cardiac arrest and he has pericardial fluid, then I know he'd benefit from a thoracotomy. After the pericardial view, I'll look at the lungs. Again, presence of a pneumo is really critical to know early on as it impacts management. Tip number four, staple or mark each wound with a metallic marker. Stable patients with penetrating injuries will almost always undergo CT imaging, either at the community hospital or a trauma center. So having a metallic marker can be helpful to understand the trajectory, especially for stabbings where the tissue can reoppose and it may not be clear where it traveled. With GSWs, there's usually cavitation and a track is visible, so it's easier to follow on CT. Tip number five. This is a bit of a two-part tip, I guess. 
In most cases, call your regional trauma center early so they can guide on the management of these patients. If it's decided to image the patient at your site for whatever reason, consider all thoracoabdominal penetrating injuries as exactly that, thoracoabdominal. So they need a chest and an abdopelvis CT. The possibility of a stab wound in the epigastric region entering the chest is really high. Gunshot wounds can travel quite far and the trajectory is sometimes unknown. You shouldn't be surprised to see bullet fragments on a chest x-ray despite the entry wound in the abdomen. And finally, I'll throw in a bonus tip, which is only applicable to gunshot wounds. It's called the bullet rule. It says that the sum of the number of bullet wounds and actual bullets seen on imaging should always be an even number. If it's an odd number, there's either wounds or bullets missing. Rarely do I do an abdo x-ray in the trauma bay, but with a stable GSW patient, this is often the instance when I'll, along with a chest x-ray, perform an abdo x-ray to identify the location of fragments. So let's go back through our case using these tips. Number one, I'm going to call for two units of O-positive blood, just based on the pre-hospital notification. Number two, when he arrives, he's awake. I'm going to have him sit up, put his arms above his head, and move him over to the stretcher. In this case, we don't see any other wounds other than his mid-abdomen. Number three, we'll start with the usual IVs and vitals, but I'll do an ultrasound starting with the pericardium, then the lungs. In this case, both are negative. Super helpful information. Number four, I'll staple the abdominal wound, and if I'm working at a community hospital or smaller hospital, I'll call the trauma center immediately. If for some reason imaging occurs before transport, it's going to be a chest, abdomen, and pelvis. And finally, I'll do the bullet rule calculation. I find one wound, so there is either another wound or a missile fragment somewhere. The chest x-ray is negative, but the abdomen x-ray shows a bullet fragment. Good. So one wound plus one fragment equals an even number. And that's it. Hopefully that helps next time you're faced with a stable patient with penetrating injuries. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, we've all gone through difficult times and sometimes we reach a threshold of stress where we need help so that we don't bottle up all that badness inside only to have it lash out at an inopportune time. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding to get you through those difficult times smoothly. Talking through your troubles with a licensed therapist can make a world of difference if you feel overwhelmed by some curveball in your life. It's taken me many, many years to develop self-awareness and understanding, and therapy can accelerate this for you. BetterHelp offers easy access, convenient, and flexible online therapy. Simply fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com emcases today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash EM cases. Next up, as part of our Best of University of Toronto EM series, we have Dr. Peter Toth from Credit Valley Hospital in Toronto. He's a veteran EM doc and the past president of the Canadian Association of Emergency Medicine. I've had the pleasure of getting to know Dr. Toth because we play music together in the Docs That Rock band. So much fun. Dr. Toth is going to give us a slit lamp hack. You'll love this one. Thank <laughs> you. 
And now for the best of University of Toronto Emergency Medicine. This is something I really enjoy is mashups, taking you know, elements from two different spheres and combining them together, which involves a mashup of uh, plastic surgery and ophthalmology, which seems like an unusual pair. And this practice tip kind of stemmed from experience I had working a late night. I think it was about 3 a.m. in the emergency department. I was in the fast track and waiting for my last CT to come back and frustrated by how long it was taking. And I was also frustrated because I'd put my hand in the garbage the day prior and I cut myself and I, I really, I had that feeling, you know, the feeling, you know, that there's a piece of glass in there, but I kept looking at it and, you know, with my aging eyes, I couldn't really see very much. As I was sitting there, I thought to myself, I wonder if I could get, you know, get a needle and try to take this out myself. And so I went into the ophthalmology ENT room to get myself a little 25 gauge needle. I passed by the slit lamp. I thought to myself, I wonder what this would look like under the microscope here. So I put my finger in front of where the patient would typically be sitting. And it took me a little while to find the sort of depth of field to be able to see my finger. But once I did, I realized, wow, I could see this foreign body and I could see that little piece of glass. So I used my other hand to start picking away at this. Lo and behold, I did have like a little sliver of glass inside my finger and I was able to take it out just like we take out corneal foreign bodies. So I was really excited by this. I thought to myself, okay, next time a patient comes in with a, a foreign body sensation, I'm going to I'm gonna use this trick and, and see how it works. And, you know, it had to be that the next patient that I saw with a foreign body had one in the second most common spot that people have foreign bodies, which is in the foot. I wondered, how am I going to do this? So somehow by getting the patient's family member and the nurse to help me, we got the foot up in the right positioning. Now, please don't tell ophthalmologists that we're doing this, but if you can imagine this patient with their foot up, a blue pad underneath it, a patient's family member, a nurse holding up this foot, and lo and behold, I, I looked under the slit lamp and I was able to take out the foreign body out of this foot. I think it was a, a splinter or something like that, but I could see so much better. Also, you can use any type of tools that you typically use to take out a foreign body, like forceps or, again, you know, 25 or small, some sort of small needle. And in the future, so when somebody comes in with a foreign body sensation, you know, maybe instead of sending them for x-ray or pulling out your ultrasound, you can move them in to the ophthalmology room and, and use the slit lamp. Now, there are some things to consider, of course, positioning sometimes is a bit of a challenge, as I mentioned. Of course, you've got to clean the, the slit lamp like you would, but it's helped me, you know, explore wounds, especially small ones, in a way that I wasn't able to in the past. And it's a neat combination of skills that we have in removing foreign bodies and using the slit lamp. So thanks again, and hopefully next time you see somebody with a foreign body, you'll think about using the slit lamp. What a great hack. Thanks so much, Dr. Toth. We'll have a beautiful image in the show notes so you can see how nicely magnified and accurate you can get in removing a skin foreign body with a needle under slit lamp visualization. Next up, we have Noor Khatib and Jonathan Wallace. Now, they're going to talk about CT radiation and cancer risk. Now, we all know that CTs can cause cancer, but 
it's a conversation I haven't heard come up in adult patients in a long time. I mean, when CTs were first being used in the ED, there was a lot of talk about radiation, which, at least in adult patients, seems to have nearly disappeared in 2023. And this is a tough one. Because on the one hand, if you need a CT to make an acutely life-threatening or limb-threatening diagnosis that has a 1% or 2 or 3% pretest probability, even in a 4-year-old, you're going to get that CT. But on the other hand, if your pretest probability of a potentially dangerous diagnosis is lower than the possibility of giving that patient cancer from doing a CT, you really should engage your patient in shared decision-making so that they really understand the risks. Let's hear what Dr. Khatib and Wallace have to say about CT radiation. Jonathan, can you tell me about the underappreciated dangers of CT radiation? Does this CT scan really justify the radiation harms is really my question. You know, Noor, I think the answer is it all depends. I used to work in a tertiary hospital emergency department, as I know you do when you're not in Inuvik. And with easier access to this excellent technology that has truly changed medicine in the past few decades, it is easier for us to order these scans. That said, though, in most rural and remote hospitals, we do not have easy access. Indeed, a CT scan may require a $20,000 plane ride in places like Inuvik or Fort St. Nowhere. Furthermore, CTs aren't without risk. Specifically, I'm talking about the risk of cancer. Did you know that it's theorized that up to 2% of all cancer in the U.S. can be attributed to the additional radiation of CT scans? That's perhaps 1 in 50 cancers that are essentially iatrogenic. That number scares me. That's highly unfortunate. And I agree, that's scary and surprising. That's definitely a number that's good to keep in the back of our heads on shift when ordering those scans. Now, full disclosure, Noor, I completed a year-long fellowship in point-of-care ultrasound, so I see the world through sonographic colored glasses. But I don't have access to a CT scanner in the various instances of Fort St. Nowhere, which I work in, so I have to rely on alternatives much more. That said, I think as physicians, we generally underestimate the level of downstream risk we are introducing by scanning someone, especially because unlike a pneumothorax during a CBC insertion, you're not going to see the lymphoma that your CT contributes to in the next few hours. Rather, that 20-year-old that you're scanning today may be 48 years old with several kids at home when it presents. And of course, in the year 2050, no one is going to think back to a CT which she received in 2022 as a significant factor in, in causing her cancer. That's definitely such a good point. Uh, how easy is it, though, to quantify the risk we're introducing to our patients? So it all depends on the patient's age and gender. A cancer risk introduced for women is generally about 50% higher than for men. And the younger you get your scan, the longer you will likely live and therefore have the opportunity for malignancy to manifest. Let me give you some hard numbers. So a 20-year-old woman comes to an ER with fever, productive cough, and shortness of breath. If she gets a non-con chest CT, her lifetime risk of cancer has increased by 1 in 390. And of course, that risk is additive. Future CTs which she receive will only further increase that risk. Now, for a 60-year-old woman coming with the same chest symptoms and getting the same scan, her risk will only be 1 in 1,090. So the 20-year-old's risk increase from the radiation is almost threefold higher than the 60-year-old receiving the same scan. Now, 1 in 390 doesn't sound that crazy high, right? But what if I told you that there is an experimental autonomous car outside that will drive you from your home to work? The only catch is that the risk of a car accident is 1 in 390. Would you get in? I mean, in the unlikely event that you do have an accident, it might not be fatal. Anyway, my point is that 1 in 390 is not that low when the potential consequence is death. 
Nevertheless, we bundle up that level of risk with a CT scan and we rarely even bat an eye. It all comes down to risk-benefit ratio, right? And how risk-averse the patient may be. How useful is the CT scan in your management today? It's an important discussion to have between you and your patient. I do highly suggest that listeners take a look at the website xrayrisk.com. I use this with my patients often, and it helps quantify to, on an individual basis the cancer risk associated with a specific test. This helps facilitate well-informed discussions on increased cancer risks from a radiation as a result of medical imaging. It gives you the additional cancer risk and the baseline cancer risk based on age and gender. It also helps put things into perspective by giving patients some statistics on car accidents, drowning, lifetime risks. So that's xrayrisk.com. It's really helped me in my discussions with patients. 100% Noor. I am not anti-CT scan. Sometimes it is absolutely the best tool for the job. However, we would be remiss if we don't even weigh the risk-benefit ratio against other possible alternates. For example, interstitial lung ultrasound has a sensitivity and specificity in the high 90s compared to a CT. So if I have the opportunity to scan a patient's lung at the bedside in a fraction of the time without any radiation or other known adverse biological effect, why wouldn't I? On the other hand, when a 70-year-old on dibigatran falls and smokes their head, that CT is almost certainly necessary. And if that means bundling them up onto a medevac flight to accomplish this, then so be it. Absolutely agree. So take-home point is be aware of the risk-benefit ratio of ordering CTs and choose wisely. Patients appreciate a good, clear discussion on their options, and we have tools like xrayrisk.com to help us with this. Thanks for joining me, Jonathan. And that was another Rural EM Quick Hit. Come practice family medicine in rural Alberta and receive incentives of up to $120,000. Enjoy lower house prices and abundant outdoor experiences. It's called the Reside Program. If you're a family physician who has been in practice for five years or less, see if you qualify for the Reside Program. Go to rpap.ca slash reside. That's R-H-P-A-P dot C-A forward slash R-E-S-I-D-E. That's R-H-P-A-P dot C-A forward slash reside. Thank you, Dr. Khatib and Dr. Wallace. We're going to round out the CM Quick Hits with our resident financial guru, Dr. Matt Pointer, who you remember from our main episode on financial planning for ED docs, certainly. On this quick hit, Dr. Pointer is going to talk about having an emergency fund. If you had an emergency and had to come up with two weeks worth of income right now, could you do it? Shockingly, most people couldn't. And what that means is that they're missing out on the biggest benefit money can provide for us, financial resilience. If you don't have an emergency fund, your financial situation is more fragile than it needs to be. The problem is that most people don't really want to plan for the bad things. But as anyone who loves sports has heard, the best offense is a good defense. That's how teams become champions and that's how you become financially secure. So Like it or not, the first priority of financial planning is having an emergency fund, a pot of money that's set aside for the sole purpose of paying for those nasty, expensive events in our lives that fall outside of our usual budget. Maybe it's a car accident and you have to pay for the repairs. Maybe your furnace breaks down in the dead of winter. Or here's a common scenario. You get injured and you can't go to work for a few weeks. Not long enough for your disability insurance to kick in, but certainly long enough to cause significant financial stress. Having an emergency fund is kind of like having your very own super versatile insurance policy against life's unpredictable but expensive irritations. 
But rather than your premiums going to an insurance company, they're just going into another account that you own and control. So it's actually a pretty good deal. And fortunately, ticking off this most essential component of financial planning doesn't require any special knowledge or skill. I'm going to lay it out for you in really simple terms. The first question is always, well, how much should I have in my emergency account? Well, the general rule of thumb is that you should have three to six months or maybe even 12 months of your basic living expenses set aside. Now, notice I said basic. Chances are, if there's an emergency in your life, you're going to be able to put things like eating out at restaurants and recreational travel on hold. So I think it's okay to focus on non-discretionary spending. In my experience, physicians are also usually safe to err on the lower end of that 3-12 to month spectrum because our jobs tend to be very secure and we don't have to worry as much about unemployment as the average person. In addition, if you have money saved in other easily accessible accounts, that can also limit the size of the emergency fund you might need. There's no cookie-cutter answers here, but at a minimum, I would suggest at least two months of living expenses. The next practical question is where should these emergency funds go? You'll hear different opinions on this one, but my recommendation is to have a separate account just for this purpose, probably something like a high-interest savings account. Personally, I like online banks because they usually pay higher interest rates than the brick-and-mortar banks, and the accounts are free and really very easy to set up. So what are the alternatives to an emergency fund? What about using credit cards, for example? This might seem like a quick and easy solution at first, and they can certainly get you out of a pinch if you know you'll be able to pay off the bill at the end of the month. But what if you can't because maybe you're injured and you can't work? Well, all of a sudden you're hit with a massive interest payment and that interest can compound really quickly, sometimes leading to a debt death spiral. Okay, so what about lines of credit? Some people prefer to think of their untapped line of credit balance as their emergency fund. And I understand this one. This is what I used to do. I didn't like the idea of thousands of dollars just sitting there only earning a relatively small amount of interest. But different pots of money have different purposes in our life, and an emergency fund is defense, not offense. I've also changed my tune on this because working one-on-one with people, I've seen how the line of credit approach can cause problems. Now don't get me wrong, a line of credit is a great backup plan, but remember, the banks can cancel that line of credit at any time, so having real money set aside in a separate account is far more secure. The second reason I'm against a line of credit as an emergency fund is because many people choose to use their line of credit for other things. The house needs new windows? Well, we use the line of credit. A little short on cash to book your next vacation? No problem, we'll just use our line of credit. These types of infrequent but expected expenses are not what emergency funds are for. So my suggestion is to keep that emergency money in its own account so that you know it'll be there when you need it. It's kind of like being an emergency physician, actually. Nobody wants to have to go to the ER for care, but when bad stuff happens, they're sure glad we're there. And not having access to emergency services would cause massive problems. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but it's inevitable that at some point everybody needs them. Creating an emergency fund for yourself and your family isn't sexy or exciting, but it is essential. It allows you to easily handle unexpected expenses without going into debt. It allows you to truly have control over your financial life. And it provides peace of mind that you're prepared for the unexpected. So add up your essential living expenses and put at least two months worth into a high interest savings account. 
If you need to build it up gradually over time, that's not a problem. As your account balance rises, so will your financial resilience. And I'll bet that your financial peace of mind will improve too. Thank you, Dr. Pointer. Let's wrap up with a quick summary. Swami talked about some recent endovascular therapy studies that suggest that even ischemic strokes with big infarcted cores may derive benefit from endovascular therapy, but that's not quite ready for prime time. The eligibility criteria for endovascular therapy should probably remain the same as it has been for a few years until bigger, better RCTs are done that show clear benefit for those big infarcted core ischemic strokes. Dr. Reed reminded us that babies and toddlers with intussusception can present with isolated decreased LOC, they can present with isolated bilious or non-bilious vomiting, isolated intermittent abdominal pain, and that the typical pattern of abdominal pain isn't always present. Also, some newer data that suggests that some kids are safe to go home after their intussusception has been reduced, and they've been observed in the emergency department for four hours. Petro gave us five tips on the stable patient with penetrating trauma injuries that are seen at a non-trauma center. The first tip was to call for two units of uncrossed match red cells as soon as you get that call that there's a gunshot wound and probably for knifings as well. The second tip was as soon as the patient arrives, sit the patient up and have them raise their arms to look for auxiliary and posterior wounds. Number three, When you reach for the pocus, look at the pericardium first and then the lungs. The abdomen can wait for a bit later. And number four, find the wounds and make some metallic markers with staples for each wound and do that bullet rule calculation, which should be an even number. And then finally, call your regional trauma center early. In our rural quick hit series, we talked about weighing the radiation risk of every CTU order and employing shared decision-making with the help of xrayrisk.com. And finally, think about an emergency fund in case you get injured or something like that. Dr. Pointer suggests a separate high-interest savings account of at least two months of basic expenses, uh, but there are other options as well. On our next main episode, I have an eye-opening discussion with pharma and tox guru David Yerlink, who's the head of toxicology at the University of Toronto, and the one and only Walter Himmel, who you all know well, where we go through the most important drug interactions that EM docs need to know about. I really enjoyed this one. And if you're interested in podcasting for medical education, I'm running the fifth or sixth, I can't remember, annual podcast camp which will be online November 30th, December 7th, and December 14th, 2023. It's the only in-depth boutique intensive course for everything you need to know to produce a world-class podcast for medical education. The course is a lot of fun for both novices and experts in podcasting. And Salim Rizé of Rebel EM, I'm so pleased to say, will be this year's keynote speaker. So please go to podcastcamp.org for more information about Podcast Camp. All right. Until next time, take it easy.